You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Uh, There is a a famous story from the early life of the famous author C.S. Lewis. Many of his biographers recount this story. One day, when Lewis was six years old, he was spending some quality time with his dad, when suddenly, out of nowhere, he made a proclamation. He said, Daddy, I have a prejudice against the French. And his dad, naturally alarmed and a little surprised, responded, Why? Why do you have a prejudice against the French? And young C.S. Lewis paused. He considered his dad's question briefly, and then after a moment, he responded. He said, well, if I knew why, it wouldn't be a prejudice, would it? Young C.S. Lewis was coming to a realization that many of us, if we're paying attention in our world, have probably noticed at some point or another. We inhabit a world of prejudice. And there's one place you can look that this becomes abundantly clear. Accents. Accents. According to a recent study cited in the Wall Street Journal, accents play a primary role in the hiring and promoting processes in the workplace. The study found that folks who had foreign-sounding accents had to work harder than their more native-sounding peers to get similar treatment. It also found that people with foreign-sounding accents were believed to be less trustworthy than others. And this isn't just true for people who have accents that sound foreign to the U.S. This is actually true for certain specific American accents. For instance, the study found that Americans with southern accents were assumed to be less intelligent than other Americans, even when they had similar credentials. There's an American author and theologian named Harry Lee Poe who talks about this in his own experience. He's a guy who grew up in the southeastern U.S. He got his master's and Ph.D. there, and then he moved to Oxford, one of the most esteemed universities in the world, and did his postdoctoral work there. And one day, there was an interviewer from another university that approached him to ask about his story, and one of the questions she asked was fascinating. She asked this, Did it feel awkward at Oxford to sound so ignorant? In our world, if someone looks or sounds or feels like they're not one of us, we suddenly become unsure, skeptical, and we prejudge folks. That's what the word prejudice literally means, to prejudge people based on our own determined categories. And then to sort them or assign motive to them or make assumptions about them or just avoid them altogether. And this isn't just evident in our accents, you guys. If we do an honest evaluation of our own hearts, we'll see the same dynamics at play here. The biases that we see out in the world are just an extension of many of our inner lives. Think about it in your own life. What sort of response arises in you when you see that person who has the bumper sticker, I stand with Trump? Or the bumper sticker, my body, my choice? What about that next door neighbor who never cleans up their yard to your liking? What about that person experiencing homelessness begging on the street corner? What about that person wearing a mask? What about that person not wearing a mask? What about that coworker who had another wild party story from their weekend? Or that man or woman who shows a little too much skin in their wardrobe? Or that dude driving the oversized truck with the lifted tires? Or that person at the grocery store wearing a turban? Or that man who just got out of prison? Or that person who practices that religion? Or that person who went to that school? Or that profile who posted that on their social media. The list goes on and on and on. 
Whether it's ethnic or social or behavioral or criminal or religious, all of us in our own ways have biases that cause us to avoid people or make assumptions about people or sort people. And as it turns out, this isn't a new problem, right? Which should actually make us feel at least a little bit better. Jesus had to deal with similar things in his time. Jesus has a lot to say about this sort of thing. In fact, over the course of his ministry and in the work of his earliest followers, well, there was great division based on all sorts of prejudices and biases. And Jesus claimed that his life, death, and resurrection was the catalyst, the spark, for a different reality in the divided world. And he said that that new reality was called the kingdom, the kingdom of God. We read about a description of the sort of people that make up that kingdom. It's where the inner lives of humans are transformed, and then by extension, the world gets transformed around them. The prejudicial and biased world gets transformed around them. This is a new kingdom community that's formed in shared unity around the message of Jesus. A community that repents and forgives and restores the brokenness of the world. And over the last few weeks here at Midtown, we've been exploring this sort of community. In our series, we're calling What's Next? This series is all about the earliest followers of Jesus. Following his life, death, and resurrection, what sort of community came about? And we've been learning the highs and the lows of that community. There's many highs and there's many lows. They're messy sort of people. And today, we get to see that the gospel, the life-giving message and story of Jesus, is for all people, including the bad neighbors, including the lazy brothers, including the ex-cons and the religious outcasts. And because the gospel is for all people, that means it tears down all of our prejudicial walls that we build up in our lives. We see this truth in three main ways in the story. Uh, We're going to open to Acts chapter 10. We're going to learn how the gospel tears down our prejudicial walls through the men in the story, the message in the story, and the means in the story. The men, the message, and the means. So friends, open your Bibles, if you have one, to uh, the book of Acts. Acts is in your New Testament. It's the fifth book there. Uh, So you're welcome to flip to Acts chapter 10. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 43. It's a long story, but it's a worthwhile one to dig into. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, that's okay. The words are going to be behind me on the screen, so you can follow along there. Acts 10, starting in verse 1. In Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort, as it was called. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. And one afternoon at about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he clearly saw an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. He stared at him in terror, makes sense, and said, what is it, Lord? He answered, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa for a certain Simon who's called Peter. He's lodging with another Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had left, he called two of his slaves and a devout soldier from the ranks of those who served him. And after telling them everything, he sent them to Joppa. And about noon the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. And then he heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that's profane or unclean. 
And the voice said to him again a second time, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times, and the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. Now, while Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of the vision he had seen, suddenly the men sent by Cornelius appeared. They were asking for Simon's house and were standing by the gate. They called out to ask whether Simon, who's called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Look, three men are searching for you. Now get up, go down, and go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What's the reason for your coming? They answered, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who's well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. And so Peter invited them in and gave them lodging. And the next day he got up and went with them, and some of the believers from Joppa accompanied him. The following day they went to Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And on Peter's arrival, Cornelius met him and, falling at his feet, worshipped him. But Peter made him get up, saying, Stand up, I'm only immortal. And after he talked with him, he went in and found that many had assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know that it's unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Now, may I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius replied, Four days ago, at this very hour, at three o'clock, I was praying in my house when suddenly a man in dazzling clothes stood before me. He said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's staying in the home of Simon, a tanner by the sea. Therefore, I sent for you immediately, and you've been kind enough to come. So now all of us are here in the presence of God to listen to all that the Lord has commanded you to say. Then Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in him, every one who fears does, does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John announced, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. How he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We're witnesses to all that he did in Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses, and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What are the most divisive walls that we've built up in our world today? Republican versus Democrat, maybe? Protestant versus Catholic? Native versus immigrant? Sons versus Lakers, maybe? I don't know what it is for you. Those sorts of divisions are what Luke has in mind when we come to chapter 10 in this book. He's envisioning a dividing wall that's so thick and so wide and so tall that no one in his day could envision getting past it. It's the wall dividing Jew and Gentile. And then he gives us two men 
who were standing on opposite sides of that wall. Men who couldn't be more divided from one another. And the reason he gives us those two men is because he's showing us that God is at work in the most antagonistic spaces in our world. God is at work in the seemingly irreconcilable relationships. That's where the power of God is most evident. That's why he introduces us to these two men. The first man is a guy named Cornelius, who was a centurion. That means he was a high-ranking Roman military man in the ancient world. And he's living in Caesarea. At that time, Caesarea was a major port city, part of the Roman Empire. The fact that Cornelius has rule over the military in Caesarea means he was pretty well trusted. The Romans believed that this guy was legit. And remember what Rome believed in that day and what they represented. Their military was world-renowned or world-feared, depending on who you talk to. See, if you were someone who was born in Rome and lived within the social role that Rome gave you, then it was a great place to live. You could carve out a nice life for yourself. But if you were other than the Romans in some way, if you were, say, a Jewish fisherman from Judea, like Peter, then the Roman Empire was relentlessly oppressive and brutal. To a first century Jewish audience and reader, Romans were at best participants in oppression and corrupt religion, and at worst, entirely unclean and vile. That's what Jewish readers think when they hear about a Roman. And so when Cornelius comes onto the stage in this story, that's what the audience would be thinking. And that's what makes Cornelius so remarkable. Because he seems to flip the Jewish stereotype of Romans on their head. See, they would expect that Cornelius would be evil and corrupt, especially because he's in the military. But we learn in this text that he fears God, the God of the Bible. He prays on a regular basis. The text tells us that he respects the Jewish people and their traditions. He's generous and gives to the poor and the needy. He seems to be someone who is turning away from the gods of his culture, sex, money, greed, the rest, and turning toward the God of the Bible. He was curious about this Hebrew God. He's flipping all of the stereotypes of Romans on their head. And in this story, his curiosity about faith is actually what leads him to hear from God, which is no small detail. We don't want to skip over that. Cornelius, in this story, not yet a follower of Jesus, not yet a Christian, but he's curious. He's open to exploring. And that curiosity means he has ready ears to hear from God. Right now, before we even get to Peter in the story, there's a crucially important truth that should start to tear down our own prejudicial walls. God is already at work, wooing and calling and beckoning people that many of us in this room would call outsiders. Those people that annoy you, those people that you don't have the best relationship with, God is already at work in their lives. The lives of those who we are most opposed to and avoidant of might just be the place that God is calling us to partner with him in. It's clear that Cornelius still needs the good news of Jesus, but God is already at work in his life. He's already curious and receptive to what God is doing. So we, as Christians in this room, just start to ask ourselves some important questions. Questions like, well, who are the people in my life that are already curious about God? Who are the people that maybe are outsiders, defined by how religion defines them, but are curious about knowing this God? Who are the folks that God is already at work in that we might be able to walk alongside? You guys, to be Christian at all means to believe that constantly, God is constantly at work beyond our religious bubbles. God is constantly at work beyond our comfort spaces. And that means that we should be the sort of people who are attuned to what God is doing outside of those spaces. And that's exactly the example we get in the second man in this story, Peter. 
most of us know him, if we've been following the story at all for the last few weeks. Down in Joppa, about 30 miles south of Caesarea, along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, Peter is introduced. And Peter, at this point, we know, has had some some really high highs. He's proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah. He's followed him faithfully for years. He's taught and healed all over Judea. But he's also had some really low lows. He opposed Jesus' commitment to giving his life away for others, the cross. And he denied Jesus three times. In Jesus' most desperate hour, Peter denied him. So he's a disciple, but he's not the best one. He's always learning and growing, which, by the way, is actually just what it means to be a disciple. That's what Peter's example is for us here. Disciples of Jesus are always learning every day more and more about what it looks like to disciple Jesus. That's every one of us in this room, friends. We need to become people who are constant learners, and that's what Peter is doing in this passage. He's learning from the Spirit. See, at this point in his life of following Jesus, he has maintained that being a Christian means holding on to Jewish cultural and religious practices. He said that that was essential, and that made a lot of sense. Remember, Jesus was Jewish, so it makes sense that the followers of Jesus would also become Jewish, that they would embrace Judaism, all of the food laws, they prioritize certain rituals, circumcision, you can't just cut that part out. (laughs) Just making sure you're still awake. But this message of Jesus, it certainly started with the Jewish people. It was never intended to end there. God's agenda throughout the whole of the scriptures has been the redemption and restoration of all things and all nations, all people. We actually learned that in the opening pages of Acts, right? The apostles are supposed to proclaim this message to Judea, to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, all over the place. And so Peter, in all of his devout Jewishness, gets a vision to remind him of that truth. He goes up on the roof to pray. And roofs in those days were not dissimilar to how we would use our patio. You'd go up on your roof to eat or talk or gather or nap or pray. And while he's up there, he gets hangry. Not just hungry. Dude's hangry. You guys know what I mean when I say this. That's actually what the Greek is saying here. It's the word hangry. It's not just that he has like a craving for a little snack. It's that he's distracted. He's disoriented by his hunger. And that might be the most relatable thing in this passage, right? Many of us, I'm sure, have entered into prayer. And then immediately as we do, we're flooded with distraction like a grumbling stomach, maybe? Oftentimes, I know in my life, I can start to guilt trip myself over those distractions, right? I'm supposed to be focused on God. Why am I distracted in prayer? But notice, that's not actually how this story goes. God actually meets Peter in the middle of his distraction. His vision that he gives him is directly related to the thing that's distracting him, his hunger. So that's an important reminder for all of us. Friends, when we enter into prayer, distractions aren't something to fret over. They're invitations to bring those things before God. To actually dig into, well, why am I distracted? What am I distracted with? What, God might, what might God be speaking to me in the middle of my distraction? In the middle of my hunger? And that's what happens to Peter here. And the vision he gets is a real weird one. The text says that he saw the heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. And then he heard a voice saying, get up, Peter, kill and eat. That vision is essentially a perfectly revolting cocktail to any first century Jewish man. All of those foods that are listed, all those animals that are listed, would be things that were deemed gross, unclean, impure in those days. 
And those weren't just superfluous or random food laws. Those actually served a significant purpose in the ancient world. Food laws were more than just, about more than just food. In the ancient world, and in much of the world still today, to eat food with someone is to share in fellowship with that person, to call that person in some way family. And the Hebrew people were called to be a family unto themselves that was distinct, that represented God to the world through their specific practices. They were called to be pure so that the world would know the purity and goodness of God. That's what food laws were about, maintaining purity. But unfortunately, in many cases, these purity practices actually would lead to bitter divisions between Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles. Gentiles would actually start to make up things. Because the Jews were being weird and had their own food laws, they'd call them pretentious. They were unwilling to eat pork, which in the ancient world was the most affordable meat you could eat. Why? Won't Jews, they're pretentious, right? They're stuck up. Or they take a day off every week, a Sabbath. Lazy. So, so lazy. And Jewish people would respond in similar ways to the Gentiles, these people who had practices that they didn't fully understand. And say, well, all of those people, they really don't love their kids. They abort their kids all the time. They don't really have a moral compass. They party and they drink, and all of their worship is about partying and drinking and sex and pleasure. That's the Gentiles. They build caricatures of one another. And so the result was that in the first century, for Jewish people, eating with a Gentile was entirely taboo. It would mean that you had in some way compromised your holiness, your allegiance to God, because you were eating corrupt foods with corrupt people. There's a a Jewish scholar who talks about this in his book, Sketches of Jewish Social Life in the Time of Christ. Alfred Eidersheim says this, All familiar intercourse with Gentiles was forbidden, and no pious Jew would have sat down at the table of a Gentile. That's how radical this division was. That's how tall and wide and thick this wall was. So Peter, alongside his other first century Jewish peers, was culturally preconditioned to prejudice. He was preconditioned to avoid or sort or assume Gentiles in such a way that he would close himself off to those people, just not interact with them, all for the sake of his own purity. That's why he responds in the way he does. He says, by no means, Lord, I'm not going to kill and eat all of these animals. I've never eaten something profane or unclean. I'm pure. I'm holy. You see what's happening? Peter, in his attempts to maintain purity, is actually preventing himself from seeing the expansive nature of the gospel. His eyes are closed to what God is doing because he's so focused on maintaining his own purity. And this isn't just an ancient, primitive way of living life, you guys. So often, in our lives, we do the same thing with the outsider. We try to save whatever we think our purity is by becoming people who avoid interaction with folks who are different than us. Christians are pros at this. Think about how often Christians will boycott a book or a movie, or a store, because they disagree with certain things about that book, or movie, or store. Think about how often Christians will inhabit spaces and learn that there are people who disagree with them and then leave those spaces, not choose to inhabit those spaces. Christians, over the last few decades, have created our own little subculture of music and film and language, as if Christian was like a genre to market. That's how we talk about our Christian faith now. It's for us, our little click, separate from the rest of the world. And this leaks its way into all sorts of things, just even beyond our religious practices. A couple weeks ago, I had two conversations with two different friends who voted differently in the most recent election and have historically voted differently in their lives. And my conversations went shockingly similarly. 
uh, to one of these friends I was speaking, and they said, you know, I just can't get along with someone who votes for and celebrates the murdering of babies. I was like, it's a strong statement. Interesting. Do you know anybody who votes that way that's a Christian? And they said, no. Well, you hadn't interacted with them. You didn't know them. And then on the other side of the aisle, another friend of mine said, I, I just can't imagine being in a close relationship with someone who votes in such a bigoted and anti-science way. And so I asked them, well, how many conversations have you had with a Christian who votes that way? And they said, none. In order to maintain their purity, what they defined as being pure, they didn't actually have conversations with anyone who might disagree with them. They closed themselves off and they built a wall. And then they just decided that they knew those people. But they didn't. They hadn't really conversed with them. They didn't know them. We do this all the time, you guys. Despite all our attempts at maintaining purity, we often become people who fail to communicate God to those around us because we don't know them. We become siloed and distant, and then we're viewed as judgmental or hypocritical. You guys, if our attempts to maintain purity causes us to be less loving to the world, if it causes us to be less invested in the health of our communities, if it causes us to be less interactive with the neighbors with whom we disagree, then we are actively opposing the truth of the gospel. If our attempt to maintain purity is setting us apart in some way from loving our neighbors, then we've left the gospel behind. We're forgetting that this message is for all people. So that's what these two men in this story are teaching us. They're divided by prejudicial walls that they can't see past on their own. And the Holy Spirit breaks in, reminds them of the radical truth that the gospel is for all people. In fact, that's the message that Peter preaches here. It starts in verse 15, in uh, Peter's vision. After Peter responded, I'm not going to eat any of those disgusting iguanas that you've brought down on the sheet for me, God. And he hears a voice. It says, what God has made clean you must not call profane. And that's a confusing thing, because Peter's like, well, you've told me to not eat these things. This seems weird. I thought this whole purpose was to separate myself, to make myself uh, the good guy and then the bad guy. So why now is this changing? There's a radical shift in Peter's mind. And then, as he's trying to make sense of it in perfect timing, Cornelius's fellows show up. They knock on the door, and suddenly starts to come to Peter. starts to make sense to him. See, the Lord's vision wasn't just about food laws. It was about the prejudices that those laws were reinforcing. It wasn't about his purity practices. It was about the way that those purity practices were forming him to be an unloving person. The food laws aren't in and of themselves bad. They serve a good purpose when practiced rightly. The problem is that it was leading religious people into prejudiced behavior that prevented them from seeing the message of the gospel getting to all their neighbors. Peter's realizing that God's primary purpose in the vision was not the foods that Peter eats, but the people that Peter loves. And so, he welcomes the Gentiles into his home, which he never would have done beforehand. And then, he goes with the Gentiles into Cornelius' home, something else he never would have done. And he begins his message to Cornelius by saying, I truly understand that God shows no partiality. It's a bold statement from a man who just hours ago thought God did show a bit of partiality. Because the message of this story is clear. There is no dividing wall, tall or thick or wide enough to prevent anyone from being invited to join the table of God. No dividing wall. 
So often as religious people, our prejudices create in us a picture of God's grace and love that is just too small. It's just too small. And so we become people who are resistant to engage our neighbors that we disagree with. If God shows no partiality, that means that God will always lead us to places that are beyond our comfort zones. He'll always lead us to places that we wouldn't ordinarily go. That's what Peter's doing here. And so a good way to know if the message of the gospel has sunk into our lives is to ask ourselves some important questions. Questions like, who are the people that I tend to avoid in my life? Who are the people that I've already discredited from receiving the gospel in some way? Where might God be calling me to engage my neighbor across walls of division that I've built up? The message is clear, friends. All people are invited to receive full and free and true life. And that message is possible because of the means that Peter teaches here. See, for people wrapped up in these sort of worldly divisions, no one would just wake up one day and say, you know what? I'm going to be nice to those people that my people have hated for hundreds of years. I'm just going to start being kind to them. That doesn't happen. Human ingenuity doesn't come up with this sort of radical wall-breaking. Worldly walls need heavenly wrecking balls in order to be torn down. Worldly walls need heavenly wrecking balls in order to be torn down. And that's precisely what Peter proclaims has happened. There's been a person who's come in like a wrecking ball. Sorry for the Miley Cyrus reference. But it's going to make the image stick now for you. Actually, you're welcome. You're welcome. Peter preaches this sermon and proclaims the means for this sort of radical inclusivity. The means is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the transforming power of Jesus that causes people to mend their divisions. It's Jesus that causes every person to know that they are beloved by God. That was Jesus' whole message. See, Jesus came in love to the world. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit, Peter says, to do good and to heal to banish things like sin and pain and prejudice and division. And it was Jesus who proclaimed a kingdom of repentance and forgiveness and new life for all people, even the outsiders, actually especially the outsiders. Those are the people that he primarily proclaimed his message to. And then it was Jesus who took on all the prejudices and all the division and all the pain and evil of the world on the cross. He allowed it to consume him, and then he put it to death. He left it in the grave. He rose again so that those things wouldn't define humanity any longer. That's the gospel. That Jesus has come to tear down all of our worldly walls. And so friends, it's only, only in Jesus, in receiving his love and grace, that we can become people who invite all to the table. It's only in Jesus that the playing field is leveled for us sort of peace and unity that we're deeply longing for, the peace and unity that our world is deeply longing for, is found in Jesus. Only Jesus. In fact, prior to Jesus and outside of Jesus, there's never been a philosophy or ideology that has affirmed this type of division breaking. See, many of us like to think that in our Western world, we've kind of invented this, right? We've come up through our own ingenuity with this idea of tearing down worldly walls, of being tolerant to one another, of loving all people. But we didn't come up with that. Jesus did. It came from Jesus. And it didn't come from anywhere else. There's a historian at Yale who talks about this. His name is Kenneth Scott Laderet. He writes about the radical nature of the early church and how it transformed and was different than everything else in the world. He said, more than any of its competitors, Christianity attracted all races and classes. It gloried in its appeal to Jew and Gentile, Greek and barbarian, 
The Greek and Roman philosophies never really won the allegiances of the masses. They appealed primarily to the educated, the morally and socially cultured. Christianity drew the lowly and unlettered multitude, yet also developed a philosophy which commanded the respect of many of the learned. Christianity, too, was for both sexes, whereas at least two of its main rivals were primarily for men. The church welcomed both rich and poor. And then he says this, no other group took in so many groups and strata of society. Didn't come from anywhere else. And so here the question must be raised, why did it first appear in Christianity? He says it's the uniqueness of Jesus, which seems the one tenable explanation. Jesus. Without Jesus, Christianity would not have sprung into existence, and from him and beliefs about him came its main dynamic. We don't get the passion for peace and unity that we long for in the deepest parts. We don't get an articulation of that sort of peace and unity without Jesus. No one, before or outside of Jesus, produced an ethic of loving and forgiving your enemies. Never happened until Jesus. No one, before or outside of Jesus, produced an ethic of universal human rights, that every human being is equally beloved before God. No one, before or outside of Jesus, has ever claimed that God died for his enemies. Guys, there's a reason that every time Christians actually practice the way of Jesus in their culture, it upsets a lot of the prejudices in the world. It doesn't make sense in the categories that the world has defined. There's a reason that when governments want to oppress certain classes of people, they start by getting rid of the Christians, or at least teaching them to compromise. Because they know that the person of Jesus will lead these people to break down all sorts of walls that the world wants to keep built up. Peter is making it abundantly clear in his sermon, and history bears it out to us. If we want to become a unified and diverse community, we need to be transformed by Jesus. If we want to become a community of love for all people, including our enemies, we need to be transformed by Jesus. And if we want to become a community that tears down dividing walls, we need to be transformed by Jesus. The means to healing a prejudiced world isn't human ingenuity or willpower. It's the transformative work and way of Jesus in our lives. I want to wrap up with a quote from a guy named Henry Nouwen. Most of you won't be surprised that I've quoted Henry Nouwen. He's one of my faves. He says this. In a world so torn apart by rivalry, anger, and hatred, we, Christians, have the privileged vocation to be living signs of a love that can bridge all divisions, that can heal all wounds. That was the vocation for Peter 2,000 years ago. And that's the vocation for each and every one of us in our own lives, friends. We're called to be people who tear down our prejudicial walls in the lives, in our lives and in the world. We're called to be people who invite everyone, especially the ones we're not as fond of, to the table. And so might we, in our own time, learn from the men and the message and the means of Acts 10. Might we become people who tear down worldly walls with heavenly wrecking balls. Amen? Let's pray.